1: somebody yelled, how big is your God now, Paul? What's your God going to do for this? You know, major problems are going to come into your life if they haven't already. People are watching. People want to know how you react during major problems. They want to see how you react. And they're going to ask, how big is your God now? No, people may not hear you when you speak about the Lord. They may not listen to you. They may turn you off, but you can guarantee they're watching you to see if what you do in your life is
0: real. Do you really believe what you say to be true is true? Jesus told us to be his witnesses. More often than not, our witnessing is done in how we live out our lives. Pastor Dave will be sharing events in the life of the Apostle Paul, where he was a witness of the gospel without doing much more than living his life as it came to him and reacting in a Christ-like manner. Now here's Pastor Dave with today's edition of Cape Watch Radio.
1: We're going to be looking at Acts 28, and we're basically going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. So if you will turn there in your Bibles, Acts 28, 1 through 10. If you've uh, found your place, let me read aloud as you will follow along silently, beginning in Acts 28, verse 1. Now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time, they saw no harm come to him. They had changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of a leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So as we studied, we were in Acts 27. As we studied, we saw Paul standing on the deck of a ship heading towards Rome. Finally, he was heading towards Rome. His lifelong ambitions, his dream that the Lord had promised him he would go to Rome and be a witness of him there. But despite all the warnings that Paul had given them, the ship sailed from a very, very safe port, and they eventually landed in the midst of a huge, great storm. The Bible calls it an Euroclydon. We call it a nor'easter. It was a huge storm that they landed in. It was a very, very bad storm. What's interesting here is that anytime a trial or temptation comes along, especially one that has the imminent danger of death, the secrets of a man's heart are revealed and as how they react during that time. During this storm, Paul stood head and shoulders above the rest of the men, not because of who he was, not because of how intelligent he was, not even because of his heritage. Paul stands head and shoulders above these men because of who and where he placed his anchor. Paul's anchor was not fastened to the crew, because if you remember in our scriptures, it said the crew wanted to abandon the ship and kill all the prisoners, which included Paul. Paul's anchor wasn't attached to knowledge like the charts of the sea and how to sail a vessel or things like that. As we read in chapter 27 verses 22 to 25, we can see exactly where Paul's anchor was. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only for the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. For I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told to me. Paul's anchor was placed in God's presence. For there stood by me an angel that night. Paul's anchor was in God's ownership, the God to whom I belong. And Paul's anchor was in his service to God, the God to whom I serve. And finally, we saw that Paul's anchor was in his faith and trust in God and God alone. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as what was told me. Paul believed God, and these four things we discussed at great length kept Paul secure in the storm of his life. Paul could stand strong. Paul could stand true in the midst of horrendous circumstances because of whom he was anchored to. Paul was firmly anchored to the Lord. Likewise, when we're faced with horrendous circumstances, when we're faced with that which seems to be totally impossible, or that which we can't wrap our head around, whether it's life-threatening or not, we too can be secure. We too can stand strong. We too can stand true if indeed we anchor ourselves to our Lord and our God. Also like Paul, when we do this, we too can be a beacon of light in a dark place. We can raise a standard of hope to those who are lost. On Sunday morning, as the worship team practices, I usually go back to what is now my office and I sit before the Lord and I read over some of my notes here and I study. And I found this on the internet. I wasn't surfing the net. I was studying. But I found this on the internet and I want to read it to you because it fits. It's from a man named J.C. Ryle who was a bishop in England. He said this, Let your Christianity be so unmistakable, your eye so single, your heart so whole, your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and to whom you serve. I like that. I really, really like that. Did you read that today? Wasn't that great? What a great passage that was. What's your Christianity look like? I pray my Christianity looks like that. I pray my Christianity looks like that. So we know as we studied that following Paul's lead, the crew ran the vessel aground. And all 276 men on board escaped injury and they went ashore. So everything the Lord told Paul had come to pass. The Lord showed himself strong on behalf of the apostle and all aboard the vessel were saved. As we spoke last week, I think it was, in the New Year's message, that It just takes one dedicated person to the Lord, one dedicated person to the Lord, and that can change the entire atmosphere of any situation. And they change it simply by trusting in God and God alone. And that faith becomes visible to others. What do people see when they look at your Christianity? Now, you may think that because they arrive safely on the aisle, because they we're all rescued from the boat. That you might think that Paul said, Okay, we're here. It's time to kick back, relax, you know, chill out. Time for me to have some me time. You might think Paul would say, Well, it's time that they served me because after all, look what I did for them. Well, sadly, if you're thinking that, you don't know the Apostle Paul very well. Paul certainly didn't let any grass grow under his feet in any place that he stood. Trust me, and he never took the lesser road when it came to serving. So, as we come to chapter 8, 28, I found three things about the Apostle Paul. I found three things. I found that Paul was the consummate minister, Paul was the consummate missionary, and he was these things because he was the consummate saint. The word consummate simply means you are extremely skilled at or you're very accomplished in that area at the highest degree. We might call it exemplary. And it becomes an example to us. So as we start chapter 28, we see that all the men are safe, and now they're on the island of Malta. In verse 1, it says, Now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. Anyone know what Malta means? It might be in your Bible somewhere. It means refuge. I find that to be very, very interesting. Malta means refuge. The Lord had not only saved them from the storm, but he gave them a place of refuge as well. And isn't this just like our Lord? David, in Psalm 57, when he was hiding in a cave from Saul, he says this in the first three verses, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. My soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. When we reread today in Psalm 9, when we read our psalm this morning, in Psalm 9, David also says that the Lord will be a refuge for those who are oppressed, it says, a refuge in our times of trouble. And I'm sure Paul felt like David did, that God had been his refuge. God saved them from this perilous storm where they were all going to die, and God gave them a refuge on an island. See, God is our refuge. And the word refuge simply means a shelter for protection from times of distress or times of trouble. Paul, just like David, supported himself with faith and trust in God and God alone. And I wonder, I wonder how many of those aboard that ship, of the 276 people on board that ship, I wonder how many of those received the Lord because of what they saw in Paul or what they heard. It doesn't say. Paul had placed his entire trust in the Lord, God alone, and God had not failed him. God had accomplished exactly what God wanted to do within Paul that day. And when they awoke, they found that they weren't alone on the island. For the people of Malta called natives, they might be called barbarians in some of your uh, translations, they were men of great hospitality and they treated them kindly. Look at verse 2. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because it was cold. I mean, it was winter in the Mediterranean. It was cold. They were wet. They were in the midst of a storm. The natives made them feel welcome and they kindled fires for themselves. But beginning in verse 3, the first part of verse 3 is where I see for myself now, Paul, the consummate minister. Paul, the consummate minister. Let's look at the beginning of verse 3 but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. Let's stop there for a minute. According to Webster's 1828, the word minister means chief servant. But the Greek language, as we studied, basically has two meanings for the word minister. One is diakonoio. It means attendant or servant. Believe it or not, this is where we get our word deacon from. This is where we get our word deacon, one who serves others. The other word we already saw and we studied, it's hupereis. It means under rower or galley slave. When Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Paul, rise, for I will make you a minister. The word there was hupereis. In other words, Paul, I'm going to make you a galley slave. Now, I'm sure all of us want to hear that from the Lord. All of us want to hear that we're going to be made galley slaves. No, if you're like me, you want to hear from the Lord, I'm going to make you great among your peers. I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to make you wonderful. Everybody's going to love you. That's what we want to hear. But no, Paul heard, I'm going to make you a galley slave. I'm going to make you the lowest of low. I love that. That's not what the Lord told Paul. Paul, I'm going to make you a servant to others, he said. And Paul was a consummate minister. He was a constant service. But you know, to serve the Lord means to serve others. It's very interesting because in Matthew 25, you don't have to turn there because I've already got it marked. In Matthew 25, Jesus is telling this parable about when the Son of Man comes down with glory in the angels and they separate the sheep and the goats and they have them there. And he says this really thing about serving others. And in it we get a true servant's heart. What does a true servant look like? In verse 34 of chapter 25 of Matthew it says, Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come. You are blessed of my father and heard the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came with me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick? or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is the heart of a true servant. This is how serving God looks. We serve the least. We serve those that are in need most. And this is what a true minister does. And this is what Paul's doing. Like I said earlier, Paul could have taken a different path. He could have kicked back. He could have said, you know what? Hey, I stood up on the deck. I was the one that got the ship saved. You guys go get the firewood. I mean, something simple as firewood. But no, the Apostles Paul's up there collecting firewood, getting firewood. Why? Because he was cold and firewood needed to be collected. Firewood needed to be collected. You know, the Lord tells us that we need to serve each other with gladness. We need to serve each other because that's the way to show the mind of Christ. And this is exactly what Paul said to the Philippian church. And you know these are my favorite scriptures. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's the consummate minister because he never stops serving. He never ceases to stop serving. He is definitely other-centered. He had the mind of Christ. And Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. What does the mind of Christ look like? Well, we, Jesus Himself shows us that mind in Mark ten forty five, when Jesus said, "For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many." It says Christ came to serve. Now, some of your translations may say, "I did not come to be ministered to, but to minister." The word for minister there, dikanoi the same one that we use for Paul the deacon, the one who serves. Warren Wearsby said, no task too small for the servant of God who has the mind of Christ. There is no task too small for the servant of God who has the mind of Christ. Let me tell you a great story that I picked up. One day, a man accompanied by two women arrived at Northfield, Illinois to enroll his daughter in D.L. Moody School for Young Women. The three needed to help getting their luggage from the railway depot to the hotel. So the man saw this guy sitting in a carriage and he said, yo, yo, you boy, come help me with my bags. The man brought the carriage over, got out, helped them with their bags and put them in there. He said, I'm waiting for students. The man said, no, no, you have to take us to our hotel. So the man took them to the hotel, got out of the carriage, took the bags and put them in the hotel room. Never charged a guy. Why? Because he wasn't a cabbie. It was D.L. Moody. Great story. I love that story. See, a true minister does whatever it takes to minister to others. A true minister doesn't have to be asked to serve. He just serves. A true minister doesn't wait around and be told what to do. He just sees what needs to be done, and he does it. That's what serving the Lord is. We see the need, and we meet it through the Lord. We see it. A true servant doesn't need to be told, this has to be done, that has to be done. They do it because their heart is so in love with the Lord that they just comes out naturally. A heart just so overwhelming with God's love, knowing what God has done for you, knowing what God has sacrificed for you, that you want to pay back. You want to give him whatever you can. And you know it'll never be enough, but it doesn't matter. A true servant, a true minister wants to give because he's other-centered. He needed firewood. Paul got some wood, and he tended to it. Paul was a true servant of God, serving others first. As I said, he was the consummate minister, consummate minister. At the end of verse 3, we see another attempt by Satan to thwart the plans of God. Satan knows that Paul's on his way to Rome. Satan knows where Paul's going. He knows that Christ told him that he was going to be a witness of Jesus Christ in Rome. The storm didn't work. The storm didn't work. Paul had great faith and the Lord prevailed. So Satan tries a different approach. You know, sometimes when you're serving others, Satan's will be right there to discourage you. He's be right there to distract you from accomplishing that which the Lord has given you to do. It's his plan. Because he doesn't want anyone to see Christ in you. That's the last thing he wants to see. Satan uses a different approach. One of my favorite animals a snake. Oh, I don't like spiders and no. Anyhow, in verse three, it says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. John Corson said, quote, while Paul was helping others, the snake struck. And you can be sure that when the serpent will strike you, when you're helping others, serving others, loving others from the heat of hell, Satan will strike. Some of you are shaking your head. You've been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The deadly viper attaches to Paul's arm. It's just hanging there. Now, wait a minute. Imagine for a moment. Paul's putting wood into the fire. He's just sitting there putting wood on fire, and because of the heat, this viper, this poisonous snake, comes out and goes, and grabs one of his arm, And Paul lifts up his arm, and there's a snake hanging from it. What are you going to do? What would you do? Everybody's watching. The whole crowd is looking in there. I bet somebody yelled, How big is your God now, Paul? What's your God going to do for this? You know, major problems are going to come into your life if they haven't already. People are watching. People want to know how you react during major problems. They want to see how you react. And they're going to ask, how big is your God now? No, people may not hear you when you speak about the Lord. They may not listen to you. They may turn you off. But you can guarantee they're watching you to see if what you do in your life is real. Do you really believe what you say to be true is true? Do you really believe it? Is it true in your life? What does your Christianity say about you? The natives were watching Paul. They knew the effects of the snake bite. It might have been one of those two-step snakes that they had over in Vietnam. Would bite you, and two steps later, you were dead. We don't know. A viper, it just says a viper, was a poisonous snake. But they made some assumptions about Paul. They didn't know how big Paul's God was, for one thing, and they made some assumptions about him. Listen to the assumptions they made. In verse four, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. In other words, they were saying, karma. Karma got him. Karma. He must have done something wrong. Why else would the snake bite? Why else would the snake bite him if he didn't do anything wrong? It's interesting, though, in John nine, in John nine, Jesus came up to a blind man and the disciples asked him a peculiar question. They asked them a very peculiar question in Psalm 9, verse 2. They said, Rabbi, whose sin, this man or his parents, that he might be blind? You know, when you're going through a trial or a temptation, there are those who will begin to ask questions, trying to seek out from you where you went wrong. What, what law did you violate? What, what sin did you commit? I mean, you remember Job's friends, right? You want to call them that. Look what they said to Job when all that calamity happened to him. They want to give you reasons why your life is such a mess. They're quick to point out your sin and decide which violation you committed. Well, if you clean up your act, this wouldn't happen. It's crazy. But the Jews at this time believed that a person could sin in the womb. So that's why they were asking, did he commit a sin in the womb for which God is now punishing for why he's blind?
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today here on Cape Watch Radio with Dave Schenck of Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Book of Acts. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of today's program, we'd like to make available to you a free copy of today's message. We can send you a copy of today's message on audio CD when you email us at info at capewatchradio.com. That's info at capewatchradio.com. Or you can listen to or download the message as originally recorded at Calvary Chapel Cape May. Just visit our website at www.capewatchradio.com. If you can't get to your computer to download or place your order, you can always call us at 609-884-5821. We'll be happy to help you. Again, that toll-free number is 609-884-5821. Again, we invite you to visit our website at www.capewatchradio. Com, where we provide helpful information about our beliefs, service times, and a convenient map to our church. You can also email us with any questions or comments you might have. And that address again is info at We'd love to hear from you. If you're in the Irma, New Jersey area and would like to visit us, Calvary Chapel Cape May is located at 596 Seashore Road in Irma, New Jersey. Cape Watch Radio is the radio ministry of Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel Cape May. Please join us next time as we continue our study through the Book of Acts. That's next time on Cape Watch Radio.